Well, for a, uh, a few months now, every few weeks, we've preached in a series called Love Abounding, and we're going to take up that series again uh, this morning. We began that series way back in 1 John 4, 8, which says, God is love. And based on that simple statement, each week in the series, we've looked at a different aspect of God's love. And particularly, we've focused on the aspects of God's character and, and of his love that don't mesh with our cultural definition of love. And so we've talked about things like uh, his judgment and his discipline and his commitment and his authority and how he endures even betrayal um, and, and how, how all of those things are in fact an expression and, and come from this God of love. They are not contrary in the least to his love. And our, our aim in this is that we'd, we'd both better understand him as the God who is love, um, and also better understand what it means to be called as, as people of love. What does it mean to love other people like God has loved us? As we come to God's word this morning, we're going to look at the connection between love and suffering. Again, this is not a common connection that the culture makes when we think about love. So we're going to think about love and suffering. Here are the texts that uh, you'll hear read in just a second. First, uh, Kathy's going to come and read for us Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Uh, this will be our main text for this morning, and you'll hear the Apostle Paul succinctly, very, in a very compact way, describe how the love of Jesus is now at work in him personally. And that's going to be the, the main text that we meditate on this morning. Uh, then Wayne will come and read for us, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Uh, this is just one example among many that we see in the Gospels of Jesus' love in action. Don will then come and read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, which is a description of what love looks like. And despite its popularity at weddings, it was not written for weddings. It was written just as a common, everyday description of what Christian love looks like. And then lastly, Anna will come and read for us from 1 Peter chapter 4, which tells Christians that we should not be surprised by suffering. Rather, we should rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, uh, which is where we'll, we'll end by, uh, by the time we're done this morning. So let me uh, just pray again briefly, asking for God's help, and then uh, readers, I invite you to, to come forward and read for us. Lord, we, uh, we turn now to your word, and it is just that. It is your word. And so would you empower it for us this morning? Speak to us, we pray. Not for, um, not for our glory in any sense, but for yours, that you would be upheld and honored and cherished and treasured among us. Um, Lord, help us better understand what it is to be loved by you. It's in uh, Jesus' name that we ask these things. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. In a life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Uh, this is Luke 7, starting in 30, uh, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, 
when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. 1 Peter 4, verses 12-16 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Well, in the in the last few years, uh, one of the things that God has been slowly showing me from the Bible, um, you, you know, sometimes we have those epiphany kind of moments where the light bulb just comes on. Uh, other times, God is slow to let things marinate in our hearts over time, and it takes us time to learn from him. And one of those things that's been slowly uh, cooking in my heart is the importance of the role of suffering, uh, both in our understanding of the gospel itself and in our approach to everyday life. 
Now, I have not suffered greatly. There are uh, just many things about my life that are easy and comfortable, and I naturally uh, find myself begrudging even small inconveniences. But I'm becomingly increasingly convicted uh, that my love of comfort and my aversion to even small amounts of suffering is not compatible with the gospel. Now, I share this at the the beginning of the sermon because I want us to understand what's happening this morning. Uh, I am preaching, um, which means I'm in front of you, um, but I'm not doing that because I'm somehow equipped to give a master's class on how suffering and love go together. Um, I'm doing it because I, too, need to go to the master to learn what it means to love as Jesus loves. And so we're all students here this morning. We're all uh, going to God's word. He alone is the teacher. And so in that spirit, let's, let's together hear again our main text, Galatians 2, verse 20. This is the Apostle Paul writing uh, a letter to churches in Galatia. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, the Apostle Paul, no doubt, was an amazing man. As we read about him in the book of Acts, which tells some about his life, as we read his own writings, we see someone who loves Jesus passionately, and he was devoted to making Jesus known wherever he went, even when that devotion to Jesus made life very difficult for Paul. In Paul, we find a man worth emulating, and his writings can be puzzling at times, but but then again, so was Jesus himself. Jesus puzzled many. Here, what's unique in Galatians 2.20 is we see with some unusual clarity what made Paul the man that he was. In this one verse, Paul connects three really big ideas. And so if you, if you want a simple outline for a sermon, here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take each of these ideas because he connects three huge ideas. He connects Jesus' love, he connects Jesus' life, and he connects Jesus' suffering. And yet as Paul does this, as he connects these three ideas, if we look at the context in which he connects them, he actually connects them related to his own life, related to the believer's life. Do you see that? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. He loved me and gave himself for me. And so the context, the medium through which we see these three big ideas connected is Paul's life which is to say just the Christian life. The love of Christ, the life of Christ, the suffering of Christ, Paul sees these things connected intimately to his own Christian experience. I simply want to follow that pattern this morning, and so I want to help us see how trusting in Jesus' self-sacrificial love for us should there produce in us a glad-hearted willingness to sacrificially love others. 
You see, when we, when we understand how, the, how love and suffering went together for Jesus, it becomes much clearer how they went together for Paul and therefore how they should go together for us. So we're going to hit each of those three ideas. Let's begin with Jesus's love. And to do this, in the order that I'm going to take it, we're actually going to take the verse and go backwards. Uh, so we find the, the, the section of, about Jesus' love at the end of verse 20. If you still have your Bible open, look at the end of that verse where he says, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if we're going to understand this verse rightly, if we're going to understand Paul rightly, we need to understand what is meant by the word Love. When, when Paul says that Jesus loved him, what does he mean? What does that word love mean for Paul? Well, in our day, I think, I think the word love is most associated with a kind of warm affection towards someone or something. And so we largely relegate love to emotion. And therefore, because our emotions come and go, we can think that love comes and goes. I'm sure you've all had the experience where one moment you feel very warmly and affectionately about someone or something, and yet not too long after that, that warm affection is gone. Perhaps they said something, perhaps they did something, and all of a sudden uh, the warm fuzzies just aren't there, right? Another way uh, that the culture sometimes defines love is to um, keep it only relegated to romantic love. So when someone refers to a love song, we all know what they meant. They're they're not talking about their sibling. They're not talking about their friend. No, they're talking about a song that was uh, sung by one romantic lover to another, and it's an exclusive song just for the two of them. And so while those concepts of love aren't wrong, those kind of warm, affectionate feelings or, or romance, they're not wrong. They are woefully inadequate for what Paul means when he says, Christ loved me. Paul isn't talking about warm fuzzies. He's not talking about romantic passion. And if we carry those kinds of definitions into Galatians 2.20, well, we're going to be like a small child who, who at the beach, he, he takes some sand and puts it in his bucket and turns to his parents and says, look, Dad, I have the beach in my bucket. In a way, that's true, but the beach is so much bigger than what that small child can fathom, and so is the love of Christ. It is just so much more sweeping than those definitions that we might commonly give to love. Brothers and sisters, the word translated love in Galatians 2.20 is the Greek word agapeo. Ancient Greek, which is the language that Paul wrote in, it had six different words for love. And so we we talk about, my my kids talk about uh, macaroni and cheese the same way I talk about my wife. We use the same English word, love. But Paul had six different words at his disposal for love, and he chose the word agapeo. Agape love is the kind of love that carries a deep commitment and faithfulness with it. The counterpart in Hebrew in the Old Testament is the word hesed, which is often translated steadfast love. 
This is the kind of love that Jesus has for Paul. This is the kind of love that Jesus has for his people. It is agape love. It is hesed love, steadfast love. Think about depth of compassion mixed with unswerving commitment. That is a agape love. And that is what Paul is, has in mind when he says, Christ loved me. The author Dane Ortland reflects on the portrait of Jesus that we find in the historic gospel accounts, and he gives what I think is a very helpful reflection. So let me read you about a paragraph and a half. He says, when we take the gospels as a whole, so think about reading all four gospels cover to cover. When we take the gospels as a whole and consider the composite picture given to us of who Jesus is, What stands out most strongly? Well, yes, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes and longings. Matthew 5, 17. Yes, he is the one whose holiness causes even his friends to fall down in fear, aware of their sinfulness. Luke 5, 8. Yes, he is a mighty teacher. One whose authority outstrips even that of the religious PhDs of the day. Mark 1, 22. But now listen to this. The dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. Now we just saw one Just one of those accounts in what Wayne read for for us from Luke 7. This this sinful woman that comes into the presence of Jesus as he dines with a Pharisee. And and we get a sharp contrast between the Pharisee's response and Jesus' response. What was the difference? It was a difference of love. The Pharisee had none. And Jesus was full of it. And it's because of stories like these that Ortland concludes, quote, the Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Merciful affections stream from his inmost heart as rays from the sun. And so in other words, when we, when we read the historical accounts of Jesus in the Gospels, one of the primary things we are to take away is this. Love is not something that Jesus does. Love is who Jesus is. The historical record shows that the more Jesus encountered humanity's brokenness, our waywardness, our sinfulness, the more his heart gravitated toward the broken, toward the wayward toward the sinful in love. To the point that all four Gospels climax with Jesus' death on a cross, a death that sinners deserved. And the result is that those sinners can be forgiven. They can live because of His death. And so this is the kind of love that Paul has in view when he says, Jesus loved me and he gave himself for me. 
On the cross, Jesus took the brutal punishment that our sins deserve. And so if you, if you take a moment and just pause and think of your worst moments, we don't like to do this as people, but I encourage you, take a moment and think of perhaps those words that came out of your mouth that you've wished that you could just take back. Think of perhaps the, the secret sin that you hoped no one would discover. Or consider maybe the, the self-serving or pleasure-seeking patterns that you just can't seem to shake. The thoughts, the attitudes, the actions that you think about. If, if other people knew this about me, they would just desert me. They'd leave. We all have those experiences. I have them. The things that we hope that others may not ever know, Jesus knows. He knows them about me. He knows them about, he knew them about Paul. He knows them about you. He knows them intimately. And yet what streams from his heart is not disgust, but love. Jesus does not recoil. He draws so near to us that He willingly takes those sickening things from us. He, he wears them as a robe and He faced God's righteous judgment on our behalf. You see, He knows that the, the only way our guilt and our shame can be buried is by one of us going into the tomb. And His his agape love, his hesed love for you is so strong that he looks at you on compassion and he says, I will face hell for you that you may not face it if you trust me. I mean, this kind of love is, is almost hard to imagine, isn't it? it? It feels like we're almost on the verge of fairy tale language. And yet that is the very love that the Son of God has for you. Who else would do such a thing for you? Who else would do such a thing for me? No one but Jesus. And so, the love of Jesus is unlike any other love that we will ever experience. It never grows cold. It never grows distance. Even at our worst moments, Jesus is full of compassion and tenderness. And yes, at times, He may rebuke us, but even these rebukes spring from his love. They're intended for our good by the one who died in our place on the cross. And so we begin with the love of Christ because it is just the foundation of everything in Galatians 2.20 and indeed the foundation of everything in the Christian life. If we do not understand and experience this deep love that the Son of God has for us, Nothing else will make sense. It is foundational to understand this is Jesus' love for you. He loved you and gave himself for you. That's the first huge idea that we find here in Galatians 2.20. Let's move on to the second, and that is Jesus' life. 
You see, when we trust in Jesus' saving love, when we cling to it, when we believe it and say, yes, I believe your sacrifice is sufficient for me, something amazing happens. In the middle of our text, Paul says, quote, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so Jesus first draws near to us to take our sin. But then he draws near to us in love to live inside us. This is his, his life. Some of us have, have grown perhaps too used to this idea, to the point where the strangeness of these words has worn off. And you think, as you, as you hear those words, well, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We just think, well, of course, I've read that before. I know that. Maybe I've heard sermons about it. But wait, just read this with fresh eyes this morning. Christ lives in you. And to Paul, the idea that Christ lived within him, it wasn't some... Um, abstract idea. It was a part of daily experience. And this so influenced the way he thought about himself that, that we find this sharp contrast. He says, it's, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so as Paul looked across his life, what he saw was not explainable by his own power. It wasn't explainable by his own wisdom or his own know-how. He saw the risen Christ at work in Paul. And so to Paul, Jesus is not just some amplifier as if uh, Jesus gave him some extra juice to some of his own uh, natural gifts and abilities. No, Paul saw his old nature completely replaced with a new one. Do you hear that? It's no longer I who live. It's gone. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. There's something new, there's something different that has come into my life, and his name is Jesus Christ. He lives in me. Well, what does this difference look like? Well, in light of the last point, one of the ways it looks like is on the topic of love. Philip Ryken, in his book, Loving the Way That Jesus Love, observes that if we take a passage on love, for example, we, we heard part of 1 Corinthians 13 read earlier, we can substitute Jesus' name for the word love, and it seems perfectly natural. Let me, let me read uh, what Don read for us, and I'm just going to substitute the word Jesus for the word love, and, and just see, well, doesn't this kind of make sense? Jesus is patient. And Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but Jesus rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. It's true. It's what we see in the Gospels. But notice the difference, and I would even say the discomfort, if we substitute our name in for the word love. So I'm going to do this with my name. I would suggest just in your own mind, do this with your name. Nate is patient. Nate is kind. 
Nate does not envy or boast. Nate is not arrogant or rude. Nate does not insist on his own way. Nate is not irritable or resentful. Nate does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but Nate rejoices with the truth. Nate bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. We can feel the dissonance, can't we? There is a marked difference between those two readings and it makes plain the deep differences between Jesus' heart and ours. You see, while the description of love perfectly fits Jesus, it makes plain to me how much anti-love is in my own heart. And so I read, Nate is patient, Nate is kind, and instantly memories are in my mind of my impatience. And times I've been unkind. I think of times when I have been envious or boastful. My arrogance, times I've been rude. You see, when it comes to Jesus and me, what naturally flows out of my heart is in stark contrast and oftentimes even the opposite of what naturally flows out of his. And this recognition gives Paul's words a new kind of weightiness, doesn't it? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus Christ, the one who is filled with love as the sun is filled with light, has taken up residence in the heart of every believer. That is, in Paul's mind, what it means to be a Christian, that we have Christ living in us, and therefore, we can expect, and I would say we should and even must expect, that Jesus' propensity to love and move toward others must begin to naturally flow out of us because he is living inside of us. Now, I think it's, it's important to pause on this point and just make a really important clarification because I fear that some of us might hear that and sense a, a burden being placed upon you. Perhaps even um, a legalistic notion of, of, well, geez, Nate just said that in order to be a good Christian, I have to work really hard at loving. And that's not what I'm saying, because I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I'm not saying, you know, you need to work harder at loving. What I'm saying is that if you are a Christian, you will find that you have a new power to love. It is a power that is alien to your own striving and to your own work. And yes, sometimes it will be a, a laborious thing to love others, but because of this reality that Jesus, the God of love, lives inside of you, you will find a new power to love. That's what regeneration is. That's what being born again means. Jesus is inside of you. Yes, you and I will still have fits and struggles with the flesh. We'll still at times be given to selfishness or pride, all the rest. But all Christians, if we see rightly, will also see a new nature, a new identity, a new power alive in our souls. And it is a power to love God and love others like we have not loved before. 
We know Christ's presence inside of a person, therefore, when we see Christ-like love coming out of that person and in their character. This is the way Paul saw it. Later in Galatians, he writes this. He writes, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It's Galatians 5, 6. And so in other words, he's saying, look, look, Galatian Christians, it doesn't matter so much what religious background you come from. It doesn't matter so much what family you come from. It doesn't matter what kind of personality you have. It doesn't matter how smart you are or what religious rituals you have performed. What matters, says Paul, is whether faith in the Son of God is evident by the love of the Son of God coming out of your life. Is he inside of you? That's what matters. Faith working through love. This is important because as we've said in other sermons, God loves his creation too much to bear with sin forever. And so God will, through his punishment, through judgment, purge all of the non-love out of his creation so it can be a place of perfect love again. And so if the only thing coming out of me is anti-love, if that's the trajectory of my heart, I am at odds with God. If we are are either a part of his revitalization project, or we are against it. And if we are against it, we too will be swept away in God's judgment. Now, the good news of the gospel is, is that through Jesus Christ, wayward, sinful people who see in themselves all kinds of anti-loves can be radically transformed. By trusting in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, we can not only be forgiven of our sins, but then this reality can happen to us. Jesus himself can take up residence inside of us, and as a result, his defining characteristics the chief of which is love, right? That's what we've already said. Now begin to flow and define us. And so if anyone here questions whether they are in Christ, well, the answer is not try harder. That will get you absolutely nowhere. The answer is to trust more fully. To ask God, not only for his forgiveness, but then as Romans 5.5 tells us to pour his love inside of our heart. That's just another way of talking about Christ living in us, that God pours his love into our hearts. It's only through the gospel that the life and the love of Jesus can be in you, can be in me. And so we've seen Paul talk about the, the love of Christ, the love that he has for us, and how that leads to trust and faith in his love, and he actually comes to then live in us. And so let's come to the third and final point. And we're just going to connect what we've already said and begin to get a little more practical as we think about Jesus' suffering. And, And the question before us is, okay, well, what does it look like for someone to have the life of Jesus inside of them? I mean, just kind of boots on the ground. What does that look like? How can I observe it? Well, often, it looks like a cross. 
We see this both at the beginning and the end of our text. And so if you still have your Bible open, look again at verse 20, Galatians chapter 2. See that the beginning, I have been crucified with Christ. That word is intentional. He's not writing poetry. He, he's being very particular. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And here comes uh, suffering again and gave himself for me. That, that giving himself was giving himself unto death. And so we have crucifixion at the beginning of the text. We have giving Jesus giving himself for Paul at the end of the text. And I think what Paul means is that the Christian life is a cross-shaped life. Yes, in the cross we find our redemption. We are included in Christ's crucifixion so that his death becomes our death. His victory over sin becomes our victory over sin. His resurrection begins resurrection life in us and secures our future life with him at the final day. But the cross is also the intended shape of our day-to-day life as followers of Jesus. And so we might remember Jesus' famous words. If anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself. Pick up his cross and follow me. Now, I've been a Christian for 25 years. And I've heard a wide variety of explanations of what it means to pick up your cross. But here's what I think it means. I think Jesus is getting at the point that love always costs us. Love always has a cost. doesn't matter whether we're talking about love toward God or love toward other people. By its very nature, love puts the beloved before yourself. Meaning that necessarily, whether we realize it at that moment or not, Loving someone or something else is an act of denying yourself. After all, isn't that what we see so clearly in Jesus' cross? Jesus did not go to a cross because he thought that suffering just had some high moral value and that good people suffer. That's not why he went to a cross. He went to the cross compelled by love for sinners like you and me. That's that's what we find at the end of our passage, right? He he loved me and gave himself for me. Those, Those things are connected. They're not separate. He went to a cross. He suffered because he loved. And so what does it mean to embrace our cross as Jesus intends? Well, it means embracing the call to love. It means embracing the cost of love. It is costly to be patient. It is costly to be kind. It costs us to resist envying and boasting. And if you've ever wanted to insist on your own way and yet you've bit your tongue to try to love that other person, you're aware of the cost. It's costly to forbear and have hope for other people when, especially when they fail you again and again. Love may have a financial cost. It will surely cost you your time. Love will require you to change your priorities, maybe your schedule. 
maybe even your job or where you live. And there is a very likely chance in this fallen world that you will be rejected or betrayed by someone that you love. Living a cross-shaped life means that none of these things is a reason to give up. Jesus loved even though he was often misunderstood. Sometimes he was rejected. And he was even betrayed by the very people he loved. And he never hit the eject button. He loved his own to the end. Why should we expect anything different, brothers and sisters, if it is now he that lives in us? If his love has been poured into our hearts, Jesus chose to love. You see, his suffering didn't just come upon him suddenly. Sometimes that happens to us. Sometimes we get a diagnosis. Sometimes something just comes out of the blue and suffering is just upon us. But Christian suffering, the way Paul thought about it, was often a choice of love. Jesus chose to love, though he saw the cost and knew the cross that it would entail. And so, beloved, I think that if we have him living inside of us, we will find ourselves also willing to suffer loss so that others may benefit from our love. You might be thinking, where? Like, where in my life does this happen? Well, it can happen anywhere. One, of, one very practical example of this is in our very church relationships with one another. One of the things I love about the, the covenant that we ratified as a membership a number of months ago is that the first resolution makes this point just crystal clear. The whole first resolution is about love. Let me read it to you. It says, Because God is our loving Heavenly Father, we will exercise tender, affectionate care for one another. We will weep in one another's sorrow and rejoice at one another's happiness. We will aid one another in sickness and distress and will subordinate our physical comfort to one another's spiritual good. Do you see how that resolution connects love to cost, love to a type of suffering or a type of discomfort? Because God is loving, we're saying we will love one another as God loves us. That's very biblical. That's what Jesus commanded us to do. Love one another as I have loved you. And one implication is that we will therefore subordinate, we will give up our own physical comfort for one another's spiritual good. That might mean that you rise a little earlier in the day so that you have time to pray for other brothers and sisters. It might mean interrupting your day, your to-do list, because someone comes to mind and you realize, I haven't talked to that person in a while, I wonder how they're doing. It might mean hearing about someone's, uh, some suffering that they're walking through and you want to weep with them, you want to come alongside them, and so you alleviate their suffering. It might be by giving up your time, visiting with them. It might be uh, meeting some of their physical needs. It might mean knowing that another brother or sister in the body, they're just having trouble getting into the Word of God. And so you're saying, hey, a few times a week, 
Can we read the Bible together? I'll call you on the phone. I'll meet you for coffee. I'll give up my time for you. That's what it means to love, to subordinate our physical comfort to one another's spiritual good. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be huge and momentous acts and feats of love, although I pray that that we would do that for one another. Opportunities to love are all around us. This is the cross-shaped life. It's the life that Paul lived. Empowered by the life of Christ in him, Paul loved God and other people so much that he had physical scars on his back to prove it. Paul, like Jesus, could have avoided all that pain. He could have avoided the, the constant reshuffling of his plans. He could have settled down, had a nice house, nice family, nice kids, two cars, maybe a garage. He could have had all that. All he would have had to do was stop loving people and loving God so much that he preached the gospel wherever he went. But he didn't do that. He couldn't. Because he loved his Lord and those people too much. I love his words in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He he lets us into what uh, further controlled him. what, What compelled him to make these kinds of decisions. He writes, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the secret to understanding those passages like we heard from Peter tells us to rejoice in our sufferings. It's strange, isn't it? I often think about rejoicing in our sufferings. The key is that Peter and James and others saw that, that as they suffered in the call of love, as they suffered in the mission of, of Christ and for the service of God's kingdom, their very suffering was a participation in Christ's sufferings. Because they were living empowered by Christ's life and they were loving the way he loved. And so even their sufferings testified to this idea that it was Christ who lived in them. And that made them rejoice. Let's pray that this would also be true of us. That our normal day-to-day routines would be cross-shaped. That the love of Christ for us and the life of Christ in us would compel us to choose love despite what it may cost us. That we would be willing to be inconvenienced or even suffer for the same reason that Jesus did, for love.